We are blessed and overjoyed to have with us today Tim and Cherry Hoke. Uh, Pastor Tim is uh, one of our missionaries that we support. Tim and Cherry are missionaries uh, in their own ways that we support and have supported for quite a number of years. Uh, and Tim is a uh, PCA pastor and professor uh, serving at African Bible University in Kampala, Uganda. And every year when they're back in the States, we try to get them here uh, and have them preach to us. So Tim, please come and open God's word for us, brother. Um, I have until one o'clock. Is that okay. reason I ask? I, my dear friend Jerry, I preached here a few years ago, and I, I preached for fifty minutes, and I didn't realize it because I love to hear myself talk. And Jerry <laughs> explained to me that's a little long. So, I'll, anyway, um, well, would it be okay if? Um, if we stood for the reading of the Word of God, would would you please stand? I'm, I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter nine, and um, beginning with verse one. Um, this is the Word of God. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, um, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of God. Let me pray, and then after the prayer, please be seated. Father, help us as we look at these verses. Help us to see them in their context, and help us to see them with the intent that the original writer, our Apostle Paul, as he was directed by the Holy Spirit, intended to convey so that we might then take them and apply them to ourselves in our context. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So please be seated. Um, I really tried to come up with a snappy introduction, uh, and I just haven't done that, so sorry. Um, but let me tell you how I got to this text, because you're probably wondering, why is this guy uh, preaching um, from Romans chapter 9, and why is he preaching these five verses? Well, this is the truth of the matter. Uh, at African Bible University, I preach in chapel almost every week. And last semester, I preached from Romans chapter 8. And I've been a Christian since 1972, and I've been in pastoral ministry since 1979, and the truth of the matter is, is I've never preached all of the book of Romans, and I've never preached Romans chapter 9. And so I decided, having preached Romans chapter 8, that I would just keep going with it, and maybe uh, I would get to preach the book of Romans before I die. So, well, and hopefully that'll be a while, but 
at the rate I'm going, I won't, it'll take me years to get through this. But, it, but what I'm trying to get to is, is that I got to the end of Romans chapter 8, and um, I, um, I thought, and this is for my students, of course, I thought what a wonderful opportunity to present to them in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul's heart for the people of Israel and God's purpose for the people of Israel and for the redeemed community and so on. And so with that in mind, I've been working on Romans chapter 9, and these verses are the very beginning of that. And I thought as well as I looked at this, for me at any rate, this is the perfect missionary sermon. Uh, as you read the text, you can see Paul's missionary heart. And so that's what I uh, wanted to convey uh, to you this morning. I, I would like to say that I, I read the New Testament uh, before I became a Christian, and I've read the New Testament in English and in Greek um, uh, for all these years, but Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, these verses never cease to just sort of jar me because it is, at least on the surface, very clear that this man we know as Paul would be willing to trade his eternal future for that of his people. And that really shocks me. I don't know why it should um, so much, but it does. And so it gets my attention. I hope it gets your attention as well. Uh, I, I want to say something about Paul. Paul at heart was a missionary. You do know that. God put in his personal, emotional, and spiritual, and intellectual and whatever else it is, DNA, that he was just at heart a missionary. Before Paul became a Christian, he was on a mission, and his mission was to destroy the Christian faith. You know that from reading Acts, don't you? And after he became a Christian, his mission in life was to establish the Christian faith. But at heart, the man was a missionary. His heart was for something outside himself and beyond himself. And as a Christian, this man gave his very life for the cause of Christ. I sign my emails typically because God is redeeming a people for himself. I think Paul would have liked that very much. That is Paul's life in a nutshell because God is redeeming a people for himself. And he spent his life toward that end. Now, we come to Romans and you have to ask yourself, well, uh, okay, uh, this is a great systematic theology of sorts, but not really. It's actually a missionary letter. Uh, let me just read Paul. He says, and I think this is Romans 15, unless I wrote it down wrongly. Since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now, Paul, by the way, when he wrote, was in Corinth, en route, in his mind at least. And to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. 
So what is Romans but a missionary letter in which the missionary defines his gospel, pulling no punches, laying it out plainly and clearly for the people to understand who he was and what he was about and what he intended that they would join him in doing. And I love that about Paul. Very straightforward. Now, Rome was a city of roughly, in the first century when Paul wrote, roughly a million people. Rome and greater Rome, we could call it. Approximately 50,000 of those people were Jews in Rome at that time. And as you read the letter to the Romans, it becomes abundantly clear that there was a significant Jewish constituency within the church. How large was the church? I don't know. But there were a good number of Jews. He, he addresses the brothers. And in some contexts, it's clear they were Jewish brothers, not just Christian ones. So we have a, we have a letter here that is written very theologically clear, very gospel-organized to a people in a city, the capital city, and a church which had at least a reasonable number of Jewish Christians. Now, my interest is not to spend much more time introducing the letter to the Romans. It is to get as fast as possible to chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, but it seems to me that if we're going to understand 9, 1 through 5, and the force of it, we need to understand something of 1 through 8. I just hate to read the Bible out of context. I, I don't think it honors the Lord. And so I wanted to just summarize for you uh, things that would get us to Romans chapter 9. And I'm just thinking my way through 1 through 8 without quoting a lot of it, just uh, summarizing in my own words. And what I find is, is that Paul's gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentiles. And Paul largely became the apostle to the Gentiles, didn't he? Because the Jews rejected, as we're going to find in Romans 9, as we see Paul's heart regarding that. But it's for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And then as, as, as we consider mankind, Jew and Gentile, the two primary categories, what do we find about mankind, Jew and Gentile, in Romans chapter, the latter part of chapter 1, chapter 2, and well into chapter 3, we find, and I sum it up with these words, Paul's words, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile alike are sinful in the eyes of a holy God minus the righteousness God requires to be accepted by God. And Paul makes this abundantly clear as he presents um, his case for the gospel in Romans. Furthermore, man can do nothing to remedy his situation. There is not one single thing anyone can do to gain the righteousness that God requires for acceptance with God. And what man could not do and cannot do, do, God did in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ who came, who lived, who died, 
who rose, who ascended, who intercedes, and who's coming again. How do we receive the righteousness that Christ has procured for us? Well, we have to do our best, don't we? No. We don't do our best. Christ has done our best. We simply rest in Christ as Abram, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. So God's salvation for our righteousness comes through Christ alone and we simply rest as you're resting in your chairs. We rest in Christ. And we're justified in the eyes of a holy God. And God does not see us as our sinful selves. He sees us as righteous in Christ. Perfectly righteous. But here's the rub. I am righteous before God. But my life doesn't show it. Not the way it should. How do I account for this? How do I view this? What, what can I, where am I in this? Am I really justified? Do I really have righteousness? Yes and yes. So what can help me? Well, the Holy Spirit can help me. And Paul makes this abundantly clear. All the way back to Romans 5, by the way, but through Romans 8, that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to take those of us who have um, been justified in the eyes of our holy and righteous God, have been given Christ's righteousness. <coughs> it is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, who leads us out of sin and into a life of righteousness. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And our hope is those who have been justified. Our hope is those who have Christ's righteousness is that the God who declared us righteous is making us righteous, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. I'm becoming more like Jesus, if I can just put it in those very simple terms. For we know, for those who love God, God works all things together for good, for those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son. And whom He predestined, He also called. And whom He called, He also justified. And whom He justified, He also glorified. Paul's so caught up with glorification that hasn't occurred yet. Justification has, glorification hasn't. That he even puts it in the past tense. And then Paul gets to the end of Romans chapter 8, and he essentially says that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing! And as I read these verses, <coughs> and I get to the end of chapter 8, having read chapters, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then finishing it late, which I did yesterday, by the way, again, I, 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 I just can't imagine that Paul could get any higher than that. I mean, he, he is the very tip top of, 
of, of, of spiritual Mount Everest dancing and jumping joyfully like any good African. But when we get to chapter 9, we don't find that, do we? We find Paul not at the highest place on planet Earth, but at the very lowest place on planet Earth, the bottom of the Dead Sea. And he is not crying for joy. He's crying with grief. I mean, he's crying with grief. And so I wanted to walk through these verses and then um, intersect them with our lives today. So maybe, maybe we can find out how this applies to us and how this would give us uh, direction. So with the great gospel of Jesus Christ in mind, with the great hope of redemption, with, 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 with our, our God who is holy and just and a God of wrath, having been propitiated by the blood of Jesus Christ, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that we are redeemed, knowing that we are reconciled, knowing that God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to us and has caused us to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit who leads us <coughs> not into a life of sin, but into a life of obedience and, and, and more and more love for God. That's who we are as God's people. How do we approach Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5? Verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is just blown away by something. Despite the glorious gospel he has just preached, Paul is blown away by something that rocks him to the very core of his being. And he explains it to us. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I have to tell you something. As I read this, I just find this bizarre. Oh, give me a break, Paul. You, you would be cut off from Christ? The Christ, the Christ who loved you so much he died for you? Oh, Paul. And so I begin to look at the commentators. The better commentators all say that if Paul could, he would. And I'm blown away by that. I can't think of anything worse than not being saved. God saved my wretched soul when I was 24 years old, changed my entire life. And to give that up for anybody or anything, wow. Now, Paul can't give it up, of course. If you read Romans 8 carefully, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Wishing, wishing to, 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 to have someone replace you can't happen. I mean, you can wish it, but it can't happen. But that's not the point. The point is, is that Paul's heart was so full of God's love that he couldn't bear it that the people he loved the most didn't have it. And that's really what it comes down to here as we read this text. Yes, he's been called, he's been 
justified and he's going to be glorified, but he wants the people he loves the most who have rejected to have the very same thing. So he says in verses 4 and 5, they are, the Israel, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I have to tell you just very briefly, before I even talk about these uh, points, and I want to touch on every one of them. I, I want to tell you something. I became a Christian in 1972, and um, it was the most revolutionary thing that had ever happened to me. I was a college student in the 1960s. I'd been a cowboy one semester. I'd been a hippie another semester. I'd been a Joe College another semester. I was, uh, I was a guy that really liked to change, and I was a lot of fun, but I was weird. I became a Christian. And I thought, oh God, don't let me become something else next semester. I begged God not to let me be one of those people. Because some people seem to come to Christ and they really don't. And I, I, I remember uh, as I begged God to keep me, <laughs> just keep me, Lord. I, I remember how my life began to change but I remember the one thing that just bothered me the most. And I kept thinking, if Christianity is true, what about the Jew? I didn't know much about the Bible, but I knew enough to know they were God's covenant people. I didn't use those terms, but read the Old Testament. Israel, 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 Israel. And I know as, as we grow, we, we understand that God is reaching the nations ultimately, but he had a particular people, and the particular people rejected God. They rejected Messiah, and I, it just blew my mind. And while I'm not Jewish to my knowledge, I kind of understand Paul here. I kind of feel it, because it's just not right. And yet that's the way it has been and to the present time is for the most part. But here, here's what he says about them. He says they're the Israelites. These are the people of God historically. The Israelites. They had the adoption. God made man from the dust of the ground. God made Israel from a pagan nation, a pagan people, or a pagan person, if you would. God didn't erect the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Perizzites or the Hittites or the Amorites or all the other ites as his people. God raised up one nation, Israel. That was God's people. Now, this is not a small thing, y'all, if I may be Texan just for a moment. They are the adopted people of God. And they're the people to whom God gave the honor and the glory as God's people. And they gave 
God gave them the covenant. Don't underestimate the covenant because God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And when you read in your Bible about the loyalty of God or um, um, the loving kindness in some translations and so on and so on, uh, that, that is um, a Hebrew word that chesed, um, you kind of have to clear your throat to say it, but chesed is God's covenant, God's loyalty, God's love. And it's not just a, hey, I love you. It's I'm committed to you regardless. I'm your God. You're my people. End of story. And so they, they had God's covenants, and he worked these covenants through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Moses, and, 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 and through the people of Israel, through David. These great covenants. And we kind of summarize this old covenant. Um, but God gave them his law. Some people think of the law as a bad thing. Oh, no. The law was a great thing because God said, look, this is the way you live. This is what you do. This is what pleases me. Did he give that to the other nations? I know it was written on their heart. Paul tells us as such. But they didn't get it codified. Israel got that. It's a great thing. The law of God is a great thing. And Paul goes so far as to say in Romans 7 that it's holy, that it's just, and that it's good. Only probably it can't justify you. But the point is God graciously gave it to Israel so that they could order their lives. And then there was the worship. Read your Old Testament. Read uh, De Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Re read the Torah. And you find out how to worship. God prescribed his own worship to the people. He told them how to build their tabernacle so that it, 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 it facilitated everything that he wanted for worship. Was this good for God? Well, of course. But it was great for the people because it defined the worship and what you find historically. Left to themselves, people never worship God rightly. Ever, ever, ever. Study the history of mankind. Paganism is the option. It's not just in Africa. <laughs> it was in Europe until Christianity came. It was in America. I guess it still is now. Uh, but... Christianity comes and, 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 and gives people the true God and how to worship the one true God. So the Israelites got that. Praise be to God. And then the promises, fundamental of which, I will be your God and you will be my people. I think of all these things God gave to them as his people. They got the patriarchs. I mentioned Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the sons of Jacob. They go to Israel. Uh, go to Israel, sorry. They go to Egypt. And God manufactures there in the incubator. He brings the gestation period of a nation that emerges some 400 plus years later. And, and the capstone of all of that is that they got the Messiah who is according to the flesh. They got the long-promised one, our Lord Jesus What did they do? What did God's people do? Well, John tells us he came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him who believed on his name, he gave the authority to become the children of God. And as a people, as a nation, as an entity, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, when Christ came, rejected him. 
Sadducees, Pharisees, and all the other E's within the Jewish community, for the most part, said no and rejected the Messiah. A few years after, I think it was a few years after Christ rose from the dead, this guy by the name of Saul becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and God changes his life. And from that point on, Saul, now Paul, had a heart for the lost. To the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. But he never got over the rejection from his own people, not rejecting him, but rejecting Jesus, the promised Messiah. Now you might be thinking, well, that's a nice biblical summary. We are uh, up to speed now. We feel a little Paul's pain. Uh, we kind of get it. We, we understand now, while after Paul could proclaim this magnificent and glorious gospel in Romans 1 through 8, that he would be dejected in the beginning of Romans chapter 9. But, you know, Tim, um, we kind of think that the Bible should not just be a history lesson, or a literature lesson, or even a theology lesson, we, we, we think the Bible should somehow intersect our lives. So how does this intersect our lives? Because I think if I took a poll this morning, there would be maybe 1% or less of us who would say, well, I'm, yes, I'm Jewish. Yes, I'm an Israelite. Uh, yes, this is bad for my people. Uh, I'm a Gentile. Uh, been a Gentile. I'm still self-identifying as a Gentile. Okay, that wasn't very funny. Um, but the Bible was written, this Bible, this book was written to Christians in a Christian community. And therefore, uh, it needs to find an application to you and to me. And um, what I simply want to say is that Paul's heart needs to be our heart. I need, I need, I need to be like Paul in these things. Um, and by the way, Paul wasn't the first one. Okay? Are you, you guys still with me? Uh, this, is, this is what's really cool. Long before the apostle Paul said that he would essentially give it up for the sake of his countrymen. You remember Moses? Moses is, God puts Moses in charge of the Israelites. Were they, oh, by the way, when they came out, of Israel, uh, came out of Egypt, were they obedient to the Lord their God? No. And God gets fed up with the Israelites. And what does God say to Moses? Stand aside. I'm going to get rid of these people. I'll make you a people. You're a good leader. You're my leader. I'm going to get you a people that will follow. I'm paraphrasing, of course. What does Moses say to God? Every time I read this, I, well, I love Moses all the more. Moses says to God, but now if you will forgive their sin, <clears throat> but if not, if you will not forgive their sin, Lord, Block me out of your book that you have written. Block me out. If you will not forgive these people, block me out. What was he saying? Well, cast me aside too. 
I stand with these people. They are your people. I want these people to be your people. And I want you to forgive them. Would you agree that Moses had the heart of a missionary? I think so. I think he did. And then there's David. We get to the end of his tiny little Psalm 131. And he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David had a heart, the heart of a missionary. He had the heart of a man that wanted the people to follow the Lord. And then, of course, there's our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus came from heaven. We we all understand that, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son of God came from heaven to earth to become one of us. Wonder of wonders. That's the most amazing thing. And I have, I have a hard time... Um, well, I, I understand the concept, but I really don't completely get it. But it's true, and it's biblical. And the reason I don't really get it, I don't, I don't really understand what it was for God to become a man. And that's okay. But it cost him everything to do that, and did, he, did, he, did God do that because he thought it would be fun to kind of find out what it was like to be one of his creatures? I don't mean to be uh, impertinent here, but no. He came because it was the only way God could redeem a sinful people. He had to become one of them to pay the penalty for their sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus had the heart. God has the heart of a missionary. He wants to reach people for God. There was David Brainerd. Perhaps you've heard of David Brainerd. David Brainerd lived in the 18th century. Um, can Google him if you want to know more, but I simply want to say that David Brainerd, Brainerd gave his life to minister to the indigenous people. I don't really know what to call those people anymore because I don't know what's politically correct. I'm just still going to call them the American Indians because that's all I know to do at this point in my life. But he gave his life to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to these indigenous people on this continent here in North America didn't go very far, but uh, there were plenty of them around. And the thing is, is that David Brainerd left the comfort of home and home life to put his life on the line. Many a time as he waded through waters and would get to the other side, he would have to take off his clothes and dry his clothes, I suppose make a fire and dry his clothes and then redress and then go and preach the gospel. Well, you might know that he died of tuberculosis at uh, 29 years of age. That's a young guy. But this is what Brainerd said. He said, I dream of lost souls. I care not what suffering I undergo as long as I see souls saved. I'll pay any price, he's saying. John Knox, who understood a little bit about suffering, 
cried out to God, Give me Scotland or I die. And John Hyde, missionary to India, cried out to God, Give me souls or I die. So these guys had a heart of a missionary. What about you? What about me? Well, you can say, well, it's fine for you, Tim. You, 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 you go to Uganda. You're a missionary. Well, what about you? No, I'm not a missionary. I'm, I live here in, in New England, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a this or I'm a that, but I'm certainly not a missionary. Well, let's rethink that for a moment. Could we do that? You're not just a Christian. You're not just a regular Christian. I want to remind you this morning that <clears throat> missionaries are just Christians. By the way, I used to think missionaries were special people, and I never felt that I was worthy of becoming a missionary. And then I became one, and I still don't feel worthy to be a missionary, but what I found out with all my missionary friends, they're just regular Christians. They're sinners, crying out loud. Uh, God just calls them here and calls them there, and um, the thing is, is that all Christians get the Great Commission, and therefore all Christians are what? We're all missionaries. We are all missionaries, and we should all have the heart of a missionary. And just because some of us don't have to travel two or three days and go to a foreign country far, far away, the different time zone doesn't mean that we are not Christian missionaries. We all have the great commission from Matthew 28, every one of us. And I want to just kind of summarize something and and then close in prayer. But I I, I want to tell you that that, um, Paul was no more a missionary than any of us. And it struck me this morning as I was thinking through this text In Paul's day, okay, just stop, just stop. In Paul's day, stay with me. In Paul's day, who did most of the work of the ministry? I want you to think about it. Can can I walk about? So Paul was over in this community. What did Paul do when he was in a community? He preached, right? And wherever he went, he tried to plant churches. Build on no, no other man's foundation. And he would go plant a church over here. Nobody had been there. He goes, plants a church, preaches the gospel. People come to Christ. Goes over here, does the same thing. Goes over here, does the same thing. Goes over here, does the same thing. Ends up in Corinth, wants to go to Rome, wants to go to Spain. What are all these people in all these churches that Paul has planted doing after Paul leaves? Oh, well, Paul's gone. Let's just uh, go fishing. I like Peter, right, and his disciples. No. You know what all these people are doing? They're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In every one of these locations, they're reaching people in their community. Do you know why the gospel of Jesus Christ turned the world upside down? It wasn't because of Paul. It wasn't because of any of the the other apostles. It was because of the Spirit of God working in the lives of the people in all the churches where churches were planted doing the work of the ministry, reaching their communities for Christ. 
that's the brilliance of the Christian faith. That wherever it goes, the people of God are so committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ that they live it, they breathe it, they share it, and others come to that same faith. That's how the church grows. I'm all for foreign missions. I'm all for supporting foreign missionaries. I, I am one, or in proper English, I are one. Um, but the bottom line is this. The church goes forward and grows because every church reaches their community to the best of their ability. And so I want, I want to just recalibrate all of our thoughts. This is sort of revolutionary for me personally, uh, although I think I probably always believed this. I just kind of thought this out. I, I didn't find it in a book, so if any of it's wrong, correct me. Um, but I, I just want to think about this just for a minute, okay? <clears throat> How many gods are there? How many persons are there in the Godhead? Could we honestly say that there is a community within the Godhead? Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Are you with me on this? I mean, think about it. There is a community within the Godhead. What do you think that community does? That community loves the community. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father and the Son love the Spirit, and so on. There is an amazing love within the Godhead. And don't tell me that God does not have fellowship with Himself. He has to. And then God creates man in his own what? Image and likeness. Is it possible that the communal God creates man to be communal? Stay with me now, because there's, there's, I'm going somewhere. When God redeemed Israel, did he redeem an individual? Well, yes, but he redeemed a community. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, you have the sons of Joseph, you have the Israelites, and on it goes, and they grow in, in, into a, 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 a nation, a people. And is it not true that, 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 that the church, while it is not a national entity, is a holy nation unto God? Peter tells us that. We are the people of God. The, the community of God. And so within our community, of course, we minister, but we also, from our community, minister. And it all be begins at the grassroots level of the church. The particular church, the local church, call it what you will, the church right here, the church right over there, wherever there is a church of God's people, they exist as a community, and they reach out from that community. There's inward reach, of course, and there is outward reach. Now, just stop and think about this, okay? And I'm almost done, so you can relax. It won't go on forever. Well, it might. Um, nobody laughed. 
Is the gospel preached here Sunday after Sunday? I know it is. Thank you, brother. Is it possible there are people that come into this church who are unbelievers? I used to think as a young pastor, oh, they're all Christians. No, 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 no. We have children that come in. We have adults that come in. We have people that think they're Christians that aren't Christians. And so we are proclaiming the gospel of hope to a community, right? And so we all care about one another within the, within the church. Oh, do we have that? What other kind of community does God put us in? God puts us in families, right? That's why Cherry is with her brother in Lubbock, and I'm in Uganda, and so we, 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 shelter, we shuttle our time, or shuttle my time so I can be with and there, here, there, because she has a family responsibility. We preach the gospel to her brother, by the way. He loves it. And then you're in a family, and uh, there's only one parent that's a believer, or only the, the wife's a believer, the husband's, a believer, but the other one is not. And Paul tells us, and I won't read it in 1 Corinthians 7, if, you're, if, you're, if your husband is unbeliever, don't divorce him uh, unless he just wants to leave. Stay with him. Uh, if your wife is not a Christian, don't dump her. Stay with her. You know why? Because that husband and that wife, in Paul's words, unbeliever is holy unto the Lord. Okay? Is holy unto the Lord. Are they saved? Well, no, but they're holy unto the Lord. They're in some special relationship within the covenant reach of God. And I can't define all that, but I'll tell you right now, it's real. I know it's real. I mean, Paul says it's real. And the children are holy unto the Lord. I had a secretary at my seminary. I was going by, Cherries, before I met you, uh, and she was a cute secretary, and I just went by to chat her up. Nothing ever went for that. No, we didn't go on a date or anything, but I was chatting her up one day and asking her about her family, and she said, well, they're not saved, but she says, Paul says in, Rome, in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household, and I'm praying for my household because God's going to save my household. Now, maybe she was overreaching a bit, but the concept is there. God works in community, right? So this is all I'm saying. Is the same heart that Paul had for the lost, shouldn't we have that same heart for the lost. And so where does it start? It starts right here. Uh, it starts within this context. It starts within our families. It starts in our work community. It starts in other communities. It, I, I think it starts, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, okay? My job is to love God. I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and my neighbor as myself. That defines what I'm about. So I'm in community, and do I have the heart for others to know Christ the way Paul had a heart for others to know Christ? I have to ask myself as I study this. I hope I do. But I will tell you this. God puts people in our context for a purpose. And God is redeeming a people for himself. Cherry, Cherry will tell you, uh, most of our married life, I have sought to have some interaction with the unbelieving world. I've been a pastor all these years, or a professional something, whatever, Christian. But I've tried to integrate myself into a club or something where they're all unbelievers. I'm doing that in Lubbock right now. I'm making friends outside the church and they're not, none of them are believers. And so what, is, what do I do? I pray. I need to pray for them. 
and I need to look for an opportunity to share Christ with them. But should I not have a burden for their souls? I should have a burden for their souls. So I want to encourage you this morning as I close, uh, think about your circle of influence, whether it's your church right here, whether it's your family, wherever they are, uh, people with whom you are in contact, you work with these people, you know them at the market, it's the lady that checks out your stuff that you smile at and she doesn't smile back. Um, doesn't matter. God puts us in their context for a purpose. God raised up Israel for a purpose. And Israel rejected God. Their Messiah came to them and they said, no, thank you, see you. Now, people might say that to Jesus from us, but our responsibility is simply to love God and to love them and to pray that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. So let me leave you with this. You have great mission opportunity right here right where you are, as well as outside. I'm not saying anybody does this. I do it, I'll confess. I tend to think of there rather than here, and I'm trying to retrain my mind. And so let's, let's do that. Let's focus on whatever circle of community God has given us. Start by praying for those people. Ask God to open their hearts, befriend them, love them, serve them. It's amazing what a little Christian love and service can do to give us passports into the deepest heart issues of other people. They just know we love them and care about them. That's what Paul did. That's what Moses did. That's what David did. All those guys that I named and especially our Lord Jesus Christ, did that very thing. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Father, we ask your blessing on the word of God. We thank you for Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. We thank you for Paul's heart for the lost. We thank you that in spite... Even though there was this great gospel that his heart was broken for those who just rejected it. And Father, we live in a world where people reject Jesus right and left. Help us not to be hardened to that. Uh, give us a softness in our souls for their souls. If somebody had not invaded my privacy and um, come into my world and told me about Jesus, I'd still be lost. Lord, you use people to reach people. And help us to reach others. For Christ's sake, I pray. Amen.